On last week's episode, I discussed the murder trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez with psychologist Dr. Eldiko Tabori. This week, we'll continue the conversation about the controversial evidence that was introduced by their psychiatrist and the life of abuse that became the motive for the murder of their parents. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. One of the questions is, Dad's image was, and the family image was very important to the rest of the world. And also take into account that he was, he was an immigrant to the United States. Right. But with immigrant families, typically in, in, in the U.S., there is this pressure to perform on the children. Look, I sacrificed everything to come here for you. And I came here with nothing. And look at how successful I am. So now you're going to make me look even better. Yeah. I, I I agree, and I think that they were living that life, you know, with from what I gather, you know, the tennis and the the just the perception from from the rest of the world. Regardless of clearly things were not right behind the closed doors, if we agree that um, or everyone thinks it wasn't a greed thing. I mean, the the spending of the money was crazy. Yeah, but you know what, Nina, when you don't understand money. And where money comes from, and you've never been taught the value of money and budgeting, you're gonna spend because you have it and you can do what you want with it, especially when you're young and you've been privileged your entire life. So you're gonna spend. The media made it look like that was their motive. And I remember back in the 1990s going, oh, yeah, these boys are horrible human beings. I I do. And I'm looking at the discrepancy between the two of them. I mean, Lyle was $345,000 in the six months before they arrested. And Eric was around 10,000, which that's a lot of money. Not, I I mean, 10,000 is is a lot of money back then, but it's not excessive in the sense that you, I, for those reasons. And there's, they're not denying that, but I, I don't think that they were, that was the motive to kill, to overkill your parents. Right? right. But that's what the media made it look like. I mean, it was such a media storm when they were, were arrested. And then for the next several years, it went on. I mean, the, the first case they had, they had already been incarcerated. They were arrested in 1990. I believe their first trial went in 1994. I mean, so they had already been incarcerated for for several years before it even went to trial because there was such a back and forth between the admission of Dr. Ozeal's recordings, those privileged recordings. Let's talk about those because this fascinates me. So obviously talking from your position as a psychologist, you have a very different take, obviously, because you're, there's a license and you're, there's a legal obligation. There's, but it, there's not just a lot. I mean, there's a lot of education and a lot of training that goes into right. to getting this PhD. It's, it's, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. It's right. not pleasant, right? And then you have... You know, for somebody who takes, you know, their license very seriously and the ethics behind it 
very, very seriously. He's such an embarrassment. So just explain what the ethics and the license regulations are for you and then what happened. Okay, so first and foremost, there is a duty to report if you, Nina, as my patient comes into me and says, I'm going to kill somebody tomorrow, then I have to step in and notify the police, notify your target, essentially have you hospitalized. Try and prevent it, yeah. Yeah. But if you, Nina, as my patient comes into me and says, I killed somebody five years ago, the communication between you and I is privileged. You, I have to maintain confidentiality unless you allow me to in writing to talk about it. Right. Right? It is a safe space. And I have had people come into my, my office, per se, and tell me that they have murdered people before. And that, I, that is not my job to report that. My job is to provide treatment. So that's a very, a very heavy burden for you in your, your profession to bear if somebody, because you're also a human being sure. and you're a very nice, caring human being. So that must be hard in the profession to bear that. Whereas me, not such a nice human caring being, I am sometimes, um, I'm like, well, you know what, what the guy did, I understand that he then recorded it. So was there a confession made? And then he started recording sessions. Is that how it worked? I believe that's that's how it worked. So Eric confesses, and then he starts recording. And what he's, he, his justification for those recordings, which is never a justification, is that he felt threatened by Eric and Lyle Menendez, saying that they threatened him, and they never did. Right. And there's none of that on any sort of recording. But that's what he started to do. And in, I've never recorded a patient other than when I was in training and it was required and the patient consented to it, right? right? But I've never recorded a patient. I've had patients record their therapy sessions with me, but it's their therapy session. That's fine. They can do what they want. Right. I can't go and record somebody. Also in California, recording people is... a Illegal. Well, no, it's it's a two-part. It, it's not a two-part. Yeah, it's yeah. not a two-part So state, you and I so. both need to consent to record. So yeah. Dr. Jerome Ozeal is, I don't even want to give him the doctor title. He's recording. I don't think he is a doctor anymore, is he? Has he lost his license? Well, no, that's a separate thing. He has a PhD. You still get a PhD. So that's what gives you the himself, title. Right. Right. The, the, the license is separate from the doctorate. So right. you get your doctorate, then you can sit for your licensing boards. So you're already a doctor when you're right, by right, the time you get right. licensed. So yes, he is. That being said, he's recording because he's saying that they're threatening him. At no, if somebody is in my office threatening me, and that has happened, they will never come back to my office because now I feel unsafe and I can legally and ethically stop treatment. Which makes sense that right. you would. But they're not coming back in. I don't. Invite somebody who's threatened me to come back and keep coming back to my office so I can record them. So it, he's he's breached everything, right? He's at breached that everything, point. and he's screwing his patient, which you can't do either. I mean, that obviously did have an effect on what happened because she was the one who got upset. So while he's and again, you may not know the answer, but while it, so he's recording and Eric is talking 
and admitting and and Lyle comes in and and they admit everything. What does he do at that point? Is it when the girlfriend gets pissed off at him that it all comes out? Does it what does he do with those recordings initially? He doesn't do anything with those recordings at that point until the girlfriend calls the police and says, Hey, I have your unsolved crime. Because my now ex-boyfriend slash shrink has been recording these and he's telling it to me. Right. Also unethical and right. illegal. Right? right. Right. And so that's when the police come. So now these tapes are in evidence and the attorneys, the prosecution and the defense attorneys are going back and forth and back and forth about having these privileged communications admitted. They were privileged communications. They should never have been admitted. Been admitted. And were they admitted in both trials? Ooh, that is a good question. So the first trial, they both, it's a hung jury. So, Correct. And the, so but that's that, not, yeah. Right. I mean, so I, I'll, I'll look and find out whether they were allowed. And then the second trial, they, they're tried as co-accused. Yeah, but only one jury. Yeah. And the second trial, so what happens? Let's back up a little bit. So the first, first trial happens. They end in a hung jury. Both of them separately. Separate. Two separate jurors, juries, two separate juries, and in hung. So it's a mistrial. Right. Both of them separately. Then OJ happens. Right. 1994. OJ happens. And then that big trial circus. So that's 1994 to 1995. Right. October of 1995, OJ is acquitted. Of murdering his wife. Another Ron. And Ron Goldman, Goldman. correct. And prosecution, the, the the district attorney's office is a mess because they've had a lot of these high-profile losses. So now the second trial for the Menendez brothers happens a week after OJ gets acquitted. And the judge, who is the same judge in both trials, reverses his own rulings from the first trial to the second trial, saying we can no longer admit any evidence that there was abuse that happened at all. Is that before the case starts or during the case that he kind of makes that decision? Well, I think right like at the beginning of the trial, right? So you can't have it. it, it, The only reason I ask, you know, sometimes people put stuff in and then it's withdrawn and it's like, well, it's too late because the jury's heard that information anyway. They wouldn't even allow witnesses to that they had. They had something like over 50 witnesses. So now you have nobody can address that they were sexually abused. The only person who can, and Lyle did not testify in the second trial, only Eric did. So now Eric is carrying the burden of both the trials, and he's the only one who can sit there and say, I I was molested. We were molested. This is what happened. Right. Um, the only time that they were allowed any evidence in, in that there was sexual abuse was after they were found guilty During the penalty phase, should we give them the death sentence or life without? Because when you're, I mean, that's what you give with first degree murder, with special circumstance. Do you think that's why they were found guilty? Because there was no reference allowed to this? I think that that played a part in it. I also think that there, I mean, it was such a media storm. And then OJ, I mean, that that was huge in, in, in the meantime. And, and the prosecution just needed a win. And this judge was 
pro-cop, pro-prosecution. He was the same judge in the Rodney King uh, cop trial. Wow. Right? That moved it out to Simi Valley. Right. Right? Um, super white Simi Valley. And these cops got acquitted of beating this poor man. Right? Because, you know, cops never do that. And um, so it's the same judge. Wow. So Beverly Hills really took a, a hit, right, that 95, 94, 95, with all these high-profile killings, murders that the world was focusing on. And the media circus became a media circus because of it. Yeah. So they obviously they get found guilty and they get life without parole. Do you think that they should be out or do you think that everyone should just, like, it is what it is, that's what they got, they sentenced and they've been inside and... And that's how it is when you brutally murder, regardless of the mitigating circumstances, that was their punishment. I honestly don't think that they should have been convicted of first-degree murder because of these mitigating circumstances. I And we weren't talking about this back in the 90s. We weren't talking about rape and molestation and abuse. And it was, as you were saying, it was cut and dry. And then, and then the media making them out to look like these, you know, greedy little rich boys in their pretty pastel sweaters, right? SNL is doing this parody of them. And... I mean, we're eating it up. We're eating it up. You know, I was buying it. I'm like, look at these greedy little jerks, right? But that wasn't the case. I mean, I look at the them crying on the stand and the the words that they were using. I mean, they weren't acting. I mean, this is true. I mean, there's tears, like they're sobbing. And if you look at actors, I mean, think about it this way. You look at actors and they're crying in whatever scene they're doing, these boys are wiping away the tears. They're like, I don't want my tears to show, right? Actors don't wipe their tears away, right? right? They're using terms like, I don't want to have sex with my dad. Who says that, right? I mean, this is, and, and when you're abused and molested at such a young age, you are emotionally stunted. Agreed. I, I agree. And, you know, I don't want, and this is a, a great discussion. And obviously I'm playing devil's advocate because I'm very much a pro, you know, the a victim of any, any kind of crime, but any sexual offense. And I understand anyone that's been involved in abuse. And, you know, we look at the Gabby Petito case and um, how tragic that was. And I've been around people. Yeah, that we can do that next. Um, but it's I've been with victims who for years and years on the outside, no one has known. But on the inside, they've been battered and beaten and sexually abused and raped. But to the rest of the world, they have to keep it quiet because that means another battering and another beating. So, um, and I get really, really pissed off. And there's a particular ex-LAPD person that will remain nameless for now, who made a comment to me, who actually had the audacity to call me and tell me that I should not speak about rape victims in the way that I do, i.e. be positive towards them because they were liars. And I'm like, what the hell? I think you hell? should name that person. I, I'm happy to, to we'll, t- we'll talk about that another time, but it's like, what are you talking about? Yes, some victims, rape victims, abuse victims, make things up 
Rape, rape, there's a number of rape victims who have said they've been raped, and there's a number of reasons. But my point I, I is, I think that percentage is so small. It's, I think it's what's, small. I'm yeah, just saying I, it's it, it does happen. I, and I think I'm, what's more more the case is that people don't realize that they've been raped or assaulted or molested. You know, I've been involved in cases where uh, a lady has had sex willingly with somebody, and then realize that that wasn't probably the right thing to do because they have a partner and and so the way of them getting out of that they've come forward my point being people do not act how we expect them to act uh, and you know people need to get over that in society and and when i suggested that maybe LAPD had some training they he got a little bit upset now as a rape officer in the UK and as a child protection officer we're trained in that, and that's what we're supposed to be well, trained in. Well, they're allegedly trained in it, but I don't think that there's much follow-through on that. No, we won't, and that's a whole nother subject. But it's just like, I don't, I just want to make it very clear that I don't have the evidence. I have what I see and my my expertise. So it's, it's a really interesting take for me to, you know, we're also friends and we we get on well, but... It's interesting on our professional backgrounds of where we sit with this. And for me, if if all of those circumstances were proven, then I understand why they were convicted. I don't understand why they would be given life without parole because that says if these were the circumstances and this was the one reason that you did this because of what was going on in the boiling pot, you're not a risk to society. You're a risk to those people. However, because I'm in the position I'm in, I don't know how much of everything that's come to light after is true because I haven't looked at it and I base everything I do on evidence. Then if no one believes all of the mitigating circumstances, they're saying, well, you cold-blooded killers, and therefore you need to go away for life. But remember, in the second case where they are convicted, you there was no evidence, nothing to say that they were being abused for so long. There was no corroborating evidence. Hence the sentence. Hence, hence the conviction. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. In the sentencing phase, they were allowed to introduce it and have those witnesses— family members, right? Friends. I mean, there was always going to be a conviction because firstly, they admitted it. I mean, okay, people make false, you know, confessions. They admitted it. So it wasn't as if the the case was fighting, are they guilty or not? The case was basically, what are the circumstances? And that's what it is now with people saying they should be out. They shouldn't be in prison. They've been in for a long time and they've been model inmates I understand and they've you know and they have lost everything now if they came out and you and I both worked in high security prison and I my job was to interview people who had done horrendous crimes Me too. and then make a decision whether they should come out. Yeah. That was part of my job too at one point is it, like, it, can this person be in? in yeah. In, in, we we yeah. would have kind of worked hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and one guy came to me and my boss said to me, he will give you, he's been in here for 30 years 
and he will give you very detailed description of what he did in order to shock you. So she gave me a rundown first and she said, he's got rid of three people because it is so shocking. And I remember he did tell me some horrendous crimes and I sat and looked at him and I went, is that the best you've got? And he, cause I was pre-warned and he was like, yeah. And I went, and it, would you do it again? Yeah. Okay. We've been in 30 years. We've given you a dog and you've looked after a dog really well. And that was part of the process. You are never coming out. If you sit and tell me in such detail, and you're going to do it again. So he was a risk to society. You know, after you've been incarcerated for so long, um, and typically after the age of 50, the, the recidivism rate is pretty low. So, Depending you know, on your crime. In this case with the Menendez brothers, I mean, they weren't criminals. That's the point. If, if people, I mean, they are criminals. Well, yeah, they committed a crime, right? Yeah, but, but it's... It's like, so So now, obviously- They're not this, bad people. Right. They did a bad thing, but doing bad things doesn't make you a bad person. If that were the case, we would all be bad people because we all do bad things at, at times in our life. Right. I don't think they should have been convicted the way they were convicted. Um, do I think that they should have gone to prison? Yeah. I Probably for voluntary manslaughter, serve seven, 10 years, something like that, and then come out. And you know what? Be on lifelong parole. Right. Be on lifelong parole. You check in with your parole agent for the rest of your life once a month. Do whatever it is that you need to do. Go to mandated treatment with somebody like me. Do that. You, you There's no wiggle room for slipping up. Fine. And I think that they would have been fine, too. Yeah. yeah. But- those mitigating circumstances were not allowed in the second trial because this judge wanted to give the district attorney's office a victory, and they got a victory, and at the expense of these these boys' lives. I'm not condoning what they did at all. I understand why they did it. I don't condone it, but I understand it. Will they come out? Probably not. It makes me sad to say that. I would love to see these these now middle-aged men. men come out into the world and be productive members of society. And whether and how that works is a whole other episode of being reintegrated into a society, especially when you are so well-known and, you know, that's a whole different thing. But that would be, uh, you know, that's something that's an op- if it was an option, I'm sure that they would embrace. I'll leave it here. The Menendez brothers weren't Charles Manson. And I'll ask a question. Did they kill people? Did Charles Manson and the Manson family kill people? 100%. Did the Menendez brothers kill someone? Yes, but these are not comparable. And on that point, we will put our handbags at dawn away and uh, go and have a gin and tonic. It's been an enlightening experience comparing and contrasting my opinion of the case with Dr. Tabori. Her empathetic perspective towards Eric and Lyle sheds new light on the psychological motivation behind the murder and addresses the subtleties that we don't always see when just looking at the evidence. This is just one of the many conversations that we hope you'll join us for, analyzing the behavior of criminals and victims through the lens of our individual skill sets. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, 
And this has been Codename Siren. <laughs>